You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so here's what we have been doing uh, over the last couple of Sundays in December. We have been meditating on Christmas, one of the themes around Advent sort of buried into the Christmas story. And then after we have thought about that theme together, we have asked the question, what sort of a Christian does Christmas make? What, what does Christmas do to us? What, what's it meant to, to, what's the shaping power of Christmas in our life? What's it meant to produce in the life of a follower of Jesus? So a couple of weeks ago, we thought uh, together about the generosity of God that is evident uh, in the Christmas story. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the generosity of God and the generosity of God for God so loved the world that he gave makes us a generous people. God gave so God's people gives. Uh, God's generosity allows us to live with open hands. It has a way of breaking the spell cast by money and possessions. It opens up our heart to actually steward all that God's given us in this life. That's what the generosity of God does to us. God gave so God's people give. Then last week, Jimmy opened up the theme of peace at Christmas and how the peace that Jesus brings at Christmas then makes us peacemakers. It makes us hard to offend. It toughens our skin. At the same time, though, it softens our hearts. And now today, we're going to pick up what you might even think of as like the theme of Christmas. We're going to think together about the incarnation of Christ. And then after we do a little bit of thinking together about that, we're going to ask that same question. What kind of a Christian does Christmas make? Does the incarnation of Jesus make? So uh, here we go, Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus. You see it there in John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's Christmas in a nutshell. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let me take that in a couple of parts. You've got that first phrase, and the word. Now, that uh, same little phrase, and the word, it's the same uh, phrase you see in the opening verse of chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. So in a lot of ways, you could think about this passage as having some climatic build up to it. It introduces us to the word. It describes the word, which leads us to ask the question, who is the word? Who is John talking about that? Who is the word? And as this passage unfolds, the answer is clear. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the word. And then John goes on to describe the person of Jesus. Who is the word? What is the word like? Who is Jesus? We see things like this in verse 1. Jesus is eternal. Look at verse 1 there. In the beginning was the word. Now, that phrase, in the beginning, takes us all the way back to Genesis 1-1, where we read that opening line of the Bible, in the beginning, God, right? So, so John is wanting us to see that there, in the beginning, before anything was, Jesus was. He was there before all things. In the beginning was the word. That's John's way of saying, Jesus didn't come into existence in a manger, So Jesus didn't like come into existence and find form a couple of thousand years ago. No, he has always been. 
He is and he will always be. Jesus is eternal. We learn in this text that Jesus is God. You see that again in verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, when you're reading the Bible, one of the things the Bible is doing for you and for me is it's introducing us to God. Who is God? Like whenever you think about that question and you want an answer for it, make sure you open up the scriptures and you read. That's the only sure way that you're not going to kind of create and make up your own God, which as human beings, we're very prone to do. So we, we put our nose in the Bible and we start to read and, and the Bible reveals God to us. And the God revealed in the scriptures is triune. Now, what does it mean to say that God is triune? It comes in three parts. First, the, the Bible presents to us a God that is one. So we are monotheists. We, we've got one God. So, so that's the God of the Bible, one God. And then secondly, though, that one God exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So one God existing in three distinct persons. And then here's the third part of what it means for God to be triune. Each of those distinct persons are fully God. The Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Each of those persons are fully God. Now, what John is affirming about Jesus is those last two statements, that Jesus is a distinct person in the triune God. So you see it there. He says, the word was with God. To be with someone means that you are distinct from them, that you're not them. You, you are distinct from them. This is the way we use language all the time. If, if you go to the, to the movie with Bill, it means that you are distinct from Bill. There is a Bill and there's a you, and you go together to the movie, right? So it's, it's affirming, John is affirming that Jesus is distinct from God, a distinct, or from the Father, a distinct person. And then it's also affirming, John is, that Jesus is fully God. You've got that last phrase. The word was with God and the word was God. Not was a God, like our Jehovah Witness friends have a way of trying to twist this text to teach. It doesn't teach that. No, it's the word was God. John is saying that there is one God. That God comes in three distinct persons. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of those three distinct persons are fully God. Jesus is God. He's eternal. He's God. We also learn in this text that Jesus is the creator. You see this in verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So if we wanted to paraphrase Genesis 1-1, we could say this. In the beginning was the word, and the word created the heavens and the earth. Every beautiful sunset, the complexity of a human body, every star you see in the sky, it was all made by Jesus, the word. Uh, Jesus is creator. Uh, We see in this text that Jesus is life. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, who in here doesn't want more life and more joy? I I don't think anyone came in here saying today, you know what I've just got too much of? Life. I I just, you know, here's what I've got too much of, joy. Could Could I take a little bit of that joy out of my, nobody came in saying that. We all came in wanting more life, having some innate sense of like, 
man, I want more than I have. I want more joy than I have. We all came in doing that. And the Bible holds up the person of Jesus as the fulfillment of that longing. That deep ache for life and joy will only be satisfied in the person of Jesus. This is why Jesus goes on to say in John 6 that I am the bread of life. And if you come to me, you're not going to hunger anymore. And if you believe in me, you're never going to thirsty. And that's Jesus saying, I am life. I am the thing your heart so desperately wants. And if you come to me, you can have that. We can experience that in part now as we trust Jesus and in full later when Jesus comes back for his bride, the church. He he is life. We also learn in this text that Jesus shows us God. You see it in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made God known. Jesus has made God visible for us. If you have ever asked the question, what is God like? What is God like in his character? What is the heart of God like? If you've ever asked that question, the scriptures would point you to the person of Jesus to see it, to answer it. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to picture God like a house for a moment, so God is a house, and, and the house is beautiful. You're just taken back by it. It's, it's stunning. It's, it's big. It's breathtaking. It's so nice that, that you want to look inside of the house uh, that's God. You want to see into it. But, but here's the problem that we have. There are no windows in the walls. Now, in a lot of ways, th- this is what God was like to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, big, beautiful, stunning, but, but it's like he's sort of a walled off mystery. We just, we want to look inside, but, but we can't see inside. And so it leaves the people of God in the Old Testament with this longing to see inside the house so they can see and know what exactly is God's heart like. And welcome to the gift of Jesus. By sending us Jesus, God turned the wall made of brick into glass into a window so that we could see inside the heart of God, so that we could, we could see in and know and enjoy God. The, the invisible God becomes visible with Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, open up your Bible to the Gospels and, and read, look at, see the person of Jesus. And the word, here's the next phrase, became flesh. Now, that word flesh is a stark, abrasive Greek word, and here's what John is communicating. He is looking at us and he is saying that that word, eternal, God, creator, the one who who just, he embodies life, he is life, this one who shows us God, that word became man. Jesus became a man. The word Jesus, who is fully God a couple of thousand years ago, became fully man. Welcome to the incarnation, right? This is what Christmas is all about. Jesus became a man. Now, when Jesus became a man, he didn't become less. So Jesus wasn't reduced by becoming a man. Rather, Jesus was restrained when he became a man. He accepted the, the constraints of humanity. So just think about, think about the word. Think about Jesus in this text. This is the one who has always existed, full of life, vibrancy, joy. The, the creator, the controller, the sustainer of the universe. 
that God, Jesus, inserted himself into a human womb. Is that not amazing? The humility of God? That God was born in a manger. That God slept in a feeding trough. This is God. This is like the one who made the stars. Jesus, the word, the eternal word, went through puberty. I'm just saying I'd have found a different way. (laughs) Got to be another way, right? The word, Jesus, walked through teenage acne. The word, Jesus, his, his voice cracked. Jesus was tempted in every way. Jesus got sick. Jesus felt disappointment. Jesus endured betrayal. When Jesus put on flesh, he put on flesh without caveat. Everything that humans experienced, he experienced. When Jesus put on human flesh, it came with great cost. I love how Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, God, the son was rich. Jesus, rich. This is Paul's description of God in heaven. Jesus in heaven, the word, eternal, creator, sustainer of everything. He's got everything he needs, but he made himself poor. That's the incarnation of Christ. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2, God the Son made himself nothing. He emptied himself. That's the incarnation. That is the word of God becoming flesh. And then you get that last phrase, and dwelt among us. Jesus left heaven, he came to us, and he dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. Now that word dwelt is is pulling from rich Old Testament imagery. If you remember the book of Exodus, God gave his people detailed plans. You're going to make this tent, this tent's going to look exactly like this, and that tent is going to go in the middle of your camp, Israel. It's going to be placed right in the middle. And then that tabernacle, that that tent of meeting became the meeting place between an unholy God, or I'm sorry, a holy God and an unholy people. It became the place where these two could come together, God and his people. And now with that Old Testament sort of history before us, John makes that parallel. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the one who is dwelling among us. He is that tent of meeting. Jesus became the meeting spot between God and people. That's that's who Jesus is. That, That little baby in a manger became the place where sinners can meet God, know God, be reconciled to God. That's what John is showing us about Jesus. That is Christmas. This is the incarnation of Christ. Christmas is Jesus came. He he lived among us. He dwelt among us. He died for us. He walked out of the grave on our behalf, not just to create a window through which we could see God, but to fling open the door so that we can walk into the heart of God and enjoy God forever. That's what Jesus has done. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Now, let's ask the question, what kind of a Christian does Christmas make? If Christmas is John 1.14, then John 17.18 is the Christian that Christmas makes. Here's John 17.18. This is Jesus, God the Son, talking to God the Father, and he says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
You see the logic of the text? Jesus is saying, just as I am sent, now I am sending you. So if Christmas is God came, now because God came, God's people go. That's the sort of Christian that Christmas makes, a going people. Maybe you could think of it this way. The manger makes us missionaries. We are a sent people, or to use just kind of language that you find throughout the Bible, as Paul would say, we are ambassadors of Christ. Or as Luke would say in Acts, we are witnesses, right? We, we are a sent people. You are a missionary. The manger has made you a missionary. That's, that's what you are. Now, just, I want you to see the language that I'm trying to use. It's identity language, See, when we're pleading with and urging you toward life on mission with Jesus, we're not saying, hey, why don't you become something that you're not? That's not what we're saying. When we're pleading with you to live on mission with Jesus, we're saying, would you lean into what Jesus has already made you? You are a missionary. Now, think about that word missionary for a moment. When you hear that word, what do you think? What comes to your mind when you hear that word missionary? When I hear that word, I think uh, this is a person who has uprooted their life and planted their life among an unreached people somewhere out there in the world. That's how I think of that word missionary. Now, that is um, how we use it in kind of a common vernacular. It is to describe people who are doing that very thing. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to try to broaden your view of that uh, that word so it can encompass more than just that. People who are out there somewhere among an unreached people. Uh, Let's define missionary like this. It is someone living on mission with Jesus. There's your missionary. Someone living on mission with Jesus. It's a person living to help others know and enjoy Jesus. It's a person who their life is aimed at, the totality of their life is aimed at the goal of of helping people who are far from God meet God. That's a missionary, someone living on mission with Jesus. Now, in that definition, I just want to point this out to you. In that definition, a missionary is less about location and more about the way you see your primary occupation. That's a missionary. It's someone who sees their primary occupation, like this is what my life is about, is helping other people know the living God. That's my life. My life is aimed at this. This is what I'm giving my days and and moments to. It's to that ambition. It's helping us kind of get a sense of that you are not in the final say of things a teacher. You are not in the final say of things, a financial planner, a stay-at-home mom, a salesperson, a fill-in-the-blank of whatever it is that you kind of occupationally do. You're not, that, you're not primarily that. That's not your primary occupation. No, your primary occupation is missionary. I am living on mission with Jesus. That's primary occupation. And I happen to be a, per- a person who teaches. I happen to be a person who does financial planning. I happen to be a person who does this. I happen to be a person who does that. But the primary thing that I'm doing wherever I am, missionary, living on mission with Jesus. Now let me back up and just ask the question, do you see your life this way? Because this is what Christmas has made you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a fisher of men. That this is, this is who you are. This is what God has sent you into the world to be, a missionary, someone living on mission with him. Is this the way you see your life? 
The manger has made you a missionary. Do you you see your life like that? This is your primary occupation. Do you see it like that? Now, let me back up and make this observation. Because in a lot of ways, I, uh, when I have said everything I've said thus far, I am expecting from most of us in the room a sense of like, you're right. I agree. We're, we're all on the same page. Hands are stacked. Yes to what you're saying. We are missionaries. Yes to that. So I, I want to just make the observation that it's one thing to see your life like this. And it's another to live your life like this. We can see it without living it. And that's very possible for all of us. And let me just give you an illustration of this, maybe just to help us see how we might be seeing it without living it. Uh, I want you to think about your, who's your one card for a moment. We're going to be thinking about this going forward in 2023 here in just a moment. Uh, But before we go forward with it, let's go backwards with it. Let's just point our life back for a few minutes to the last, you know, three or so months of this year, of 2022. We filled out our last Who's Your One card in uh, early September for the last sort of quarter, last three or four months of the year. Now, I want to ask you a question about your Who's Your One card, the, the one you filled out in September. Did you talk to that person about Jesus? If so, praise God. And if you did, we would love to hear that story. Uh, What what happened there? And and we're not expecting every one of those stories to be awesome. There's going to be a whole range of that. So we would love to hear. If if you did, we would love to hear about that. But here is what I think is true for many of us in the room, is we just didn't get around to it. It didn't happen. So we look back over the last four months. We're all saying, yes, we we see our life this way. Here's my one. I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to pursue him. But but then just life sort of happened, and here we are, and it just didn't happen. Now, what I want to do for our last few minutes here is just try to answer the question, why are we so prone to that? What is getting us jammed up between the seeing this is what we are and then us actually living into that, leaning into what it is that we are? What are some of those things that jam us up? Now, I'm going to give three. Uh, These may or may not be yours. So I just want to invite you, if if you're looking back over the last quarter and you're saying, you know what, I didn't didn't talk to my one about Jesus. I'm just inviting you to ask the question, what is jamming me up? What is the gap between what I'm theoretically and, and, you know, intellectually saying, yeah, this is what I am. I see my life this way, but I'm just, I'm just not doing it. What, what is that thing? Let, let me give you three. One thing that often jams us up between what we see and what we live when it comes to evangelism and talking to people about Jesus is what I would just call our lack, our, our lack. Years ago, a friend of mine tweeted this question. Why are Christians negligent, hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel? Why is that? And and look at those words. I think it's a great question. Why are we negligent? Just don't get around to it. Just doesn't happen. Hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel. So friends, we did that. And then another friend of ours who is an Englishman, so I wish I could say this in an English accent. It would sound so much better, but I just, I'm not going to do it for you, all right? Uh, he said this in response. Answer to that question. Here's the reason. Because we are not truly, madly, and deeply 
besotted with Jesus. Besotted. That, that word doesn't make its way into my normal vocabulary. I don't know if it does you. If so, you're weird, all right? But, but here's, what, here's what that word means. It means to be intoxicated with, captivated by, obsessed with something. That, that's what the word besotted means. Why are Christians negligent, hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel? Answer, because we are not truly, madly, deeply besotted with Jesus. Now, I'm just inviting you to think about your own heart like that. I think the logic of that holds. I think that is true. I think it's the first thing we should all say. If we find ourselves reluctant, hesitant, negligent, resistant to opening our mouths and talking about Jesus, the first question we should ask is, am I besotted with Jesus? Am I truly, madly, deeply besotted with Jesus? And if we're finding that that we're just not talking about Jesus, it just doesn't make its way into our day-in, day-out sort of language and conversations, it, it likely is pointing to that our affections for Jesus have dwindled, that the person of Jesus has just sort of shrunk and shriveled in our hearts. Um, a lot of you know about the five love languages. It's a book written years ago, kind of talking about the five ways that we sort of give and receive love. So it's things like uh, quality time, things like physical touch, things like words of affirmation on down the list of things. Uh, well, for my daughter, Hannah, I'm going to add a sixth love language in there. there. There's one more that I found out with her uh, that should be on that list. And her l- primary love language is uh, Netflix. That's her primary one. She <laughs> loves movies. It's like, if, if I look at her and say, okay, we're doing it tonight. You just, whatever you want, I'm there. Let's, let's do the thing. I mean, it's just scratching all the deepest itches of her soul. I mean, it's amazing. And so one of the things that's caused here recently is for us to kind of be in the documentary game. And uh, a few weeks ago, we watched a documentary called The Alpinist. It is unbelievable. Uh, I, I was scared to death the whole time I watched it. You have this guy who, without a rope, is climbing the most dangerous things a human being could climb. I mean, if you're into that sort of thing, your life expectancy is like 4.5 years. I mean, it's like, if you make it out of like your toddler years, it's going to be amazing, right? It's just, it was unbelievable. Now, it's just interesting for me to watch now over the last couple of weeks. Do you know what I have done almost every time I've sat down across the table from someone? You are not going to believe what I just saw. And I, I've told them the whole story uh, of this documentary. And just over and over and over again. Why is that? It's because my heart was stunned by it. And anything your heart is stunned by, you are going to speak of. That, that's, that's the logic. So again, if, if we're finding that we're just not, we're not talking about Jesus very much. The first place we should go is asking that question, is my heart still besotted with Jesus? This is where it starts. Years ago, I remember reading this sentence from John Stott. And I've never been able to get away from it. Listen to what it says. The greatest single hindrance to evangelism today is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. The greatest hindrance is not our personality. Introverted, extroverted. 
the greatest hindrance is not our speaking ability. The greatest hindrance is not a new technique we need to learn, a new tool that we need to kind of incorporate into our... The greatest hindrance in evangelism today is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. That Jesus is just no longer burning in our heart. That's the main issue. So, so can we just take a step back and just ask the question, Father, is that true of me? Is Jesus burning wide hot in my heart? Is he, is he big to me? And if not, th th this is just God inviting you back in. He's just looking at you today and saying, okay, so, so if not, why don't you bring that to me in a moment of genuine repentance? And I'd love to help you with that. Here's one thing that jams us up is just our lack. We're not besotted with Jesus. Here, here's another thing that has a way of jamming us up. It's what we could just call our fear, our fear. I agree with one commentator when he said, many words can be spoken in human discourse without the slightest risk or need for courage. But speaking this word or about this word, a Christ-centered word, he says, always requires courage. I, I agree. Entering into conversation at the level of the cowboys, entering into conversation at the level of the weather, it just it requires no risk for any of us. But the moment you turn the conversation to Jesus, hey, I'm a Christian, I, I love to pray. Is there any way I could pray for you? Anytime you turn the conversation to Jesus, you innately feel the risk. What is this gonna do to our friendship? Uh, what's this gonna do to my standing or reputation uh, before them? How are they gonna respond to me? I've been following Jesus for like 25 years. And uh, in every one of these type of moments, when I'm turning the conversation toward you, it just requires fresh courage. Just for the Lord to meet me again with fresh courage to open up my mouth and talk about him. And one of the things I get a lot of encouragement in, inside of the scriptures is this was Paul too, the apostle Paul. It, when he's finishing that letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, would you, would you please pray for me that I would have boldness so that when I open my mouth, I could declare Jesus like I ought to. Would you pray for boldness for me? And so maybe that's our thing. Why are we, why are we negligent, hesitant, reluctant, or even resistant to speak the gospel? Maybe it's just because we're scared. And if so, this is just, again, it's a moment for the Lord to, to invite you back in. For you to bring that to him, repent of that, and for him to give you fresh courage today. I had a friend uh, this last week send me this text. He said, when the angels said to the shepherds, don't be afraid, they coupled that with, you will find a baby in a manger who is Savior, the Messiah, and the Lord. And then he goes on to say, not fearing is always wedded to finding more of Jesus. Only Jesus' perfect love drives out our fears. And Jesus would just love to give you more of his love today to drive out that fear in you. Here's a, a, a potential third reason is what I would just call our lives. Just the arrangement of our lives has a way of, of, of making it really hard to, to actually lean into life on mission with Jesus. See, if we're gonna talk to people about Jesus, if that's gonna be a normative habit in our life and a way that we live, here is one thing it requires is margin margin. So it, 
we cannot have a schedule that from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep is just cram-packed. We just can't do that and live on mission. There's got to be margin and, and flexibility, and it takes margin to be attentive to the Holy Spirit, which is like the thing with conversations about Jesus. But we need to hear from the Lord so we can, we can obey him in all of these conversations. So it just, it takes margin to be attentive to the Lord in that way. So let me just give you a hypothetical trip to the grocery store. Just imagine the two ways you could go to the grocery store. Here's way number one, you can go to the grocery store. You can pull up and inside you are doing this calculation. I've got 13.47 seconds to get in there and out of there. So dear Jesus, please let there be no one I know in there. That can be one way to go to the grocery store. Here can be another way to go to the grocery store. With margin, on mission, and then you walk out of your car, you're walking into the store and you're saying, Jesus, someone in here needs to, to be seen by you today. Know that you care. Someone in here needs Jesus. And God, I'm here, I'm here with you, I'm on mission with you. So if you'll point them out, if you'll just arrange a divine little opportunity and appointment, right? God, I am so available, let's do this. That's a, that's a much different trip to the grocery store, isn't it? And it just takes margin to have a way of living into that and leaning into that. But it's not just overcrowding in our schedule, it's also overcrowding our life with Christians. The longer you are a follower of Jesus, the more likely it is that all of your friends will also be followers of Jesus. And yes to, we, we all in here need friends who are followers of Jesus. We talk about that all the time. That is, that is a necessity if you wanna live faithfully to Jesus. You need friends who are followers of Jesus and you need friends who are far from Jesus. Followers and friends who are far. Church, it is hard to have conversations about Jesus with people far from Jesus if we don't know people far from Jesus. I mean, it's a pretty simple observation, right? I mean, it's just gonna be hard to have many of those if we don't know people who are far from the Lord. It's, it's like trying to catch fish in a bathtub. It's like, you can fish in there all day long. I'm just saying you ain't gonna be catching much in there. But why? Because there are no fish in your bathtub. In the same way, if you don't create space for friendships with people who are far from the Lord, you are not going to talk to people about Jesus who are far from the Lord. You're just not going to do it. Why are Christians negligent, hesitant, reluctant, or even resistant to speak the gospel? Just our lives, overcrowding, not making space and room for these things. So maybe that's you. Maybe that's the, the, the specific nerve that the Lord wants to press today and bring you back home to him with. It's a chance for you to repent to him, to come back to him today. He'd love to help you in that. Okay, so now it's time to grab your card. And um, before we look forward, we're looking back. Have I talked to my one from the last quarter of 2022 about Jesus? If not, then you've got a couple of weeks left before the year's over. So I just wanna encourage you, if not, this is a moment to repent of whatever's keeping you from that and, and to get about the work that the Lord set before you, to, to get on mission with him, to live that sent life, to not just say the manger has made us a missionary, but to actually live into that. But now we also get a chance to look forward. Who is that one person in the first quarter of 2023 that the Lord would set before you to pray for? That's the first ask, to pray for. Just pleading that the Lord would do all of that preparatory work in their life. 
to pray for and then pursue. And by pursue, we mean open up a conversation about the person of Jesus with them. Who would be that one person? And just a couple of clarifying statements around that. It's, it's not 10 people, it's just one person. Who is that one person? And I think so often when we're having this moment, what's heard is, who is far from the Lord that I love the most? And that's not the precise question that I'm asking or the precise thing that I'm trying to get you to think of it. You're one for the next quarter. Maybe that person who doesn't know Jesus that you love the most, but it might not be. I would encourage you to think first about proximity. Who are you around? Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's, uh, you know, other parents uh, at your kids' you know, teams. Uh, maybe it's a person that you're in class with. But, but who is that person that you have proximity with that you can actually open up your life with? You're going to see uh, quite a bit over the first quarter of the next year uh, that you can then open up the conversation about Jesus. Who, who is that person? You're one. And as always, the goal in this moment is 100% participation. If Stonegate is your church home, I'm asking you to find your one. To get on mission with Jesus, to find that one person that the Lord would have you pray for and pursue. So here is how it works. Uh, We are about to sing together. And while we sing this song, you're just gonna get some room to ask the Lord for who that one is. And you can see how the cards arrange. The left side is, you're gonna fill that out. The right side, fill that out. Then you're gonna tear it into the right side that says your copy. You can just slide into your Bible so that every time you open your Bible, you are being prompted to pray for your one. And then you've got the left side, that Stonegate's copy. And as we sing today, I'm gonna invite you to come up and put your card in one of these baskets. And really this is what's happening when you come up and put that card in the basket. It's a way for you to say, God, I'm offering this man, this woman to you. Father, would you rescue them? God, would would you do that saving work? And God, would you give me courage? Would you give me all the help I need to open up that conversation? That's what you're doing when you bring that card up. So why don't you pray with me? give you a moment there to ask the Lord for who is that one? And Stonegate, when it comes to Christmas, it is right and true to say that the Christmas is saying to the world that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it is also right to say that Christmas is saying to the world that for God so loved the world that he has sent you out into the world as his good news ambassadors. Maybe we live into that, lean into that. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that you could come and dwell with him, so you could know him, enjoy him. So if you have not taken that decisive step toward Jesus, do that today. Right now in this moment, do that. Father, come now and meet us, help us, give us the grace that we need, oh God. And it's in your good name we ask you.